Hi, everybody. My name is Angie, and I'm an alcoholic. I am very glad to be here, and uh, I'd like to thank the committee and uh, Lisa and Debbie uh, for being so gracious and so kind, and uh, thank you for the uh, basket uh, that had all the goodies in it. Uh, I think I cracked a tooth on the peanut brittle, but that's all good. <laughs> it's all good, and uh, I'm just glad to be here. Uh, Anything I can do for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I am always willing and ready to go because I've been overly compensated in this deal. And thank God that I didn't get what I deserved. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I am originally from Greenville, South Carolina. Back home we lived in a little uh, white house on a red clay road. We got our, our water out of wells and uh, uh, we uh, ate cornbread and drank buttermilk on a regular basis and I had flaming red hair and freckles, and nobody else in my family did. And one day my brother had me uh, locked in the outhouse, and he said, uh, I know why you look the way you do. It's because the, uh, the mailman is your daddy. So uh, whenever I saw the mailman coming down the street, I was like, Daddy! And, uh, and I would uh, run up to him, and uh, he would pat me on the head and put his arms around me and tell me how cute I was. And uh, thank God for the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, The Steps in the Traditions and Sponsorship. I found out that that turned out to be a little pattern for me, actually. That uh, if you just put your arms around me and told me how cute I was and pat me on my head, we were basically married at that point. And <laughs> we... Uh, we stayed down south for a while, and my daddy ended up, I'm from a family of Baptist ministers, and my, my daddy got transferred from Greenville to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and we moved up there. And in the process of my daddy traveling back and forth, he uh, found himself a little girlfriend. So he uh, moved us to Cincinnati, Ohio, and then he went to live with his uh, girlfriend and their ready-made family, and that left my mother to raise my brother and sister and myself. And... Uh, You'll hear me talk a lot about my mother. My mother uh, was a very, very strong woman. And my mother cleaned bathrooms for a living, and she made a solemn vow that her kids would never, ever have to live that life again. And when we moved up to Cincinnati, Ohio, my mother was really, really good on education. She wanted us to have the best education. We could not speak anything but proper English. We couldn't use words like ain't. We couldn't bring any slang into my mother's home. It was always proper English because she knew that if we didn't learn that, she felt like we'd always be less than. And uh, my mother uh, right now struggles with Alzheimer's. And uh, it's been difficult. On June the 20th, I went over to my mother's house to share with her that I had 20 years of sobriety. And when I walked into her house, she didn't know who I was. And she looked at my freckles and she said, Donna, what's those things on your face? I said, Mama, those freckles. And she started touching my face. And she kept calling me Donna. And I looked at my sister. And I said, what's wrong? Why doesn't she know me? And she said, it's here, Angie. <clears throat> it's here. And I walked out of that house, and I got in my car, and I started driving. 
And I started calling people in Alcoholics Anonymous, talking to them about what had just happened. And people said to me, well, Angie, you know, at least she's still here. I've lost my mother. At least yours is still here. I said, you know what, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like that at all. And so I had to go back and I had to start to remember when we came from South Carolina. My mother was beautiful, and she still is. And everybody was always so attracted to her because she was strong and she was beautiful. And she directed us and she told us what we needed to do and she gave us morals and values and told us what it was she needed to do. And I remember at the age of 12, my mother began to have symptoms of mental illness, symptoms of mental illness. And back then when you had mental illness the way my mother did, they gave you shock treatments. And I used to think when I first got sober that my mother didn't love me. That not only did my mother not love me, but my mother didn't like me. And thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that if you keep coming back and you work the steps and you incorporate the traditions into your life, that your perception will most certainly change. And my mother loved me in a huge way. And when my mother would have those shock treatments, she would make, she would make sure that I was in that hospital room when she got back, that she wanted to come to and back to her senses looking at me. And I thought she didn't love me. My mother saw me as her strength, and I never knew that. Thank God for AA. So we move up to this little town called Lachlan in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, my mother decided that she wanted us to go to Catholic schools. So now I got a flaming red afro, a white blouse, a plaid skirt, and black and white spaldings and bobby socks. And I saw me. I had never seen a black person with red hair and freckles. And so now here I am at this Catholic school. My mother gave us some directions when we started our first day at this school. She said, now they're going to have you going to church on a regular basis. And you'll see people, Angela, Ronnie, and Penny, line up to take that little cookie. Don't you do that. <laughs> Don't you do that. And you know what my brother and sister did? They stayed seated when they lined up to go up and get that little cookie. And you know what Angie did? She got in line. And I watched. And I put my hands together. And I walked up there with the rest of them. And all I could think of was, I'm about to get me a cookie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm about to get me one. And I got up there, and that priest put that cookie on my tongue, and I bit down on it. And I said, this ain't no cookie. Y'all eat this every day? What's wrong with you? And Sister Frances Ellen took me to the side and uh, told me that I need not do that anymore and told me the importance of it and, uh, and I didn't go back in the line anymore. And uh, So I'm at this school and, and there's this girl named Squeaky. Squeaky's like 6'10 in the fifth grade and she hung out with people that beat up kids that were different and I was one of them. And one day on my way home from school, Squeaky and her little posse stoned me and was beating me up, and I ran in the house, and I told my mother, I said, whew, I'm glad I made it in the house. They were about to kill me. 
And I knew whenever my mother sounded like this, she meant business. She goes, you know what, Angela? At some point, you've got to learn how to stand up for yourself. And I want you to go back out there and you stand up to Squeaky. I said, you want me to do what? She said, are you staying here and you get this butt whooping that I'm going to give you? And I knew what my mother felt like and I only knew what Squeaky's appeared to be. So, <laughs> so I went out there and we lived in the, they said it was the projects. It was just two buildings that faced each other, but they said it was the projects. And uh, we had this big parking lot. And I went out there and I, I looked up to Squeaky and I said, my mother said I'm supposed, no, that's a lie. I said, my mother said I'm supposed to fight you. And she said, well, come on then. And I remember when my brother used to box, he'd always jack his fist like this. Then he put his two little fingers up. And then he bounced back and forth like this. So here I was standing in front of this big Amazon like this. But see, I know that the committee was in my head a long time ago before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous because I got these dinglings up in my head going, hit her. You're going to have to catch her off guard. Then I got one saying, you know she's going to kill you if you do that. Then I got one over here saying, don't worry about it. Just reach up and close your eyes. So I closed my eyes as tight as I could, and I reached up, and I went, and I got it right here. It was the happiest day of my life. Happiest day of my life. Well, look at Georgia applauding violence. Nice. That is so nice. Nice. And on a Sunday morning, thank you very much. Good Lord, I just used it to all of us. And so I hit her, and so I hit her, and she didn't budge. And I looked at her, I said, you about to kill me, huh? And she gave me the big beat down. But I got this thing called alcoholism that helps me remember what I should forget and forget what I should remember. And all I remember was that I hit her. And I hit her good. And while she had me down on the ground, beating the life out of me, my mother was in the screen door, and I'm going like this to my mother. I wouldn't swing and I wouldn't do anything because I got this thing in my mind that says I hit her and I won. And my mother comes out the screen door and she pulls Squeaky off of me and she lifts me up by my T-shirt and she takes me in the house. And the whole time I'm going in the house, I was like, I did it, Mama. I did it. I hit her. I did it. She said, get in here before she kills you. <laughs> so uh, we stayed in this little town called Lachlan and my mother, I need to tell you, worked as a waitress. And she sent my brother and sister and myself to Catholic school. And one day my mother came and got me from school. She had got a better job working for this company. And uh, she took us to our new home. She moved us out of the two-building project and took us to our no new home. And we moved into an all-white neighborhood. We were the first African-American family to move into this neighborhood. And so from the age of 13 to 20, I wasn't even black anymore. I... <laughs> I listened to Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. My favorite girl group was Heart. And the first concert I went to was Led Zeppelin, baby, 1979. I was at the Ted Nugent Foreigner concert one night, and Foreigner was singing Feels Like the First Time. And I looked around that coliseum, and it was all white people and me. And I remember thinking, I am bad. And that night I became a legend in my own mind. 
and I started hanging out with my friend Rebecca. I had five girls, five little white girls that I hung out with, and, and my friend Rebecca, we would go over to her house and hang out at her house, and I loved her mother, and I still love her mother to this day. Her mother loved me unconditionally, and we would go over to Becky's house, and one day we're at Becky's house, and her brothers are downstairs drinking, and her mother comes up, and she calls a family meeting. She goes, Rebecca? That's my white woman voice. Rebecca? When she yelled family meeting, every person in that house stood up like a choir and went upstairs, and I went upstairs with them because I wanted to see what was going on with this here family meeting. Rebecca's mother goes, Rebecca, your father and I have been communicating. <laughs> I love that. Don't you love it? Your father and I have been communicating. And Rebecca, we understand that there's been some alcohol consumption. And Rebecca, your father and I have decided that if you're going to drink, we'd rather you drink at home. I said, what your mother just say? She goes, yeah, she wants us to drink at home. She thinks it's safer. I thought that was the, the happiest, most loving family I ever met in my life. I remember I went home and I was like, Mama, can I have a beer? She said, uh-uh. I said, okay, I'm going down to Becky's. Don't be late, Angie. And I began hanging out with Rebecca. And one night Rebecca came to my house and we were sitting in the backyard. And I loved my backyard at this house. It had a, a tire with a rope on it, and, and it had, like, we just had a lot of land, and we sat out the back, and Rebecca came, and she had, a brown, she had a brown bag with two bottles in it. And it was Boone's Farm Apple Wine. Let me see if I heard it right. Boone's Farm Apple Wine. Okay. And... Uh, I had, she gave me a bottle and she had a bottle and she said that her brothers had schooled her in the art of uh, chugging and told me that we need to turn this up as long and as hard as we can and drink until we can't drink anymore and just swallow. And that's what I did. And I need to tell you that that something hit the bottom of my feet and rose to the top of my head and I knew from that point forward that I was going to do this every opportunity, every opportunity I got. And that's exactly what I did. I hung out with my friends. We drank, and we had big, big fun. But I need to tell you that the way I drank and the way they drank were two totally different things, two totally different things. I didn't stop until I woke up the next morning. I drank, and it's just like it talks about in the book. I took the drink. The drink took me. Alcohol became my master. It wasn't necessary for me anymore to go to school. It wasn't necessary anymore for me to listen to my mother. The only thing that was important for me, the only thing that was important for me was that I be able to drink and do whatever I wanted to do. And here's the one thing that my parents did. My parents said, you know what? You can mess up your life all you want to, but we got other kids we have to raise. And if this is the way you choose to go, you go, but you can't do it here. And I started hanging out at people's houses and drinking alcohol and not going to school. Every now and then I would show up for school or I would audition for a musical. And I would hear things like this. You guys probably didn't hear it, but I would hear things like this. Angela, you have so much potential. You have a voice that could take you places, Angie. But alcohol was what I wanted to do. And I don't mean any disrespect. There's a couple little drugs in my story. Just inhale and blow it out for a second. And uh, I smoked a little marijuana. I didn't really like it because it, you know, made me eat everything that had been in everybody's freezers for 10 years. And uh, 
you know, did a little hallucinogens, and it got me a mental health diagnosis. And, um, but I have to tell you this story. One night uh, we were riding around, and my friend Rebecca gave me two little pills. She told me to take one, and I took two. And it was strawberry mescaline. And she nice. Okay, so you guys did that too. Wonderful. And uh, I took these two little pills, and uh, I was driving, and they were in the back seat. And halfway down this long road, they said, let's go to McDonald's. And I started riding down the road, and that mescaline took effect. And it seemed like the car that I was driving just went, and the steering wheel got so big. And the arch to McDonald's was burning on the side of my face like nothing I've ever felt before. And I'm pulling into McDonald's like this. And I'm straightening out the car and my body's like this. And I get over and I'm, they said that I had to go up to this little yellow box. You, you younger kids might, might not remember this, but back in the day, there was a little yellow box with about six holes in it. And that's what they talked to us in. And, and I'm tripping, and, and this is when my trip began to go bad. And I pulled up to this little box, and, and what I heard was, what do you want? What? What do you want? What is it that you want? What do you want? And just like any other alcoholic, you attack me, I'm going to have to attack you back. And I said, no, little dude, what do you and your little people want with me? You know what I mean? And, and so I'm having words with this little box, you know what I mean? And, and I knew that I could whoop him because he only was this big, you see what I'm saying? So I knew I'd have to catch him, but I knew I could get him if I needed to. And uh, so we pull up to the next window, and they order, and we pull up to the next window, and some girl's in that window with eyelashes this big, you know what I mean? And she's asking me for money, and... Oh, it was horrible. It was horrible. And then uh, we go up to the next window, and some guy's got the biggest visor i ever seen in my life going, salt or ketchup, salt or ketchup. So now I froze, right? Now I froze. So I'm, I'm sitting there in the car, and I can't move because this visor has traumatized me to no end. And so I sit there, and I'm sitting. They call the police because now the drive-thru is backed up. And so they call the police, and the police car pulls in, and he gets out of the car, and he's just a jiggling walking towards me. He's walking towards me like this. Everything's shining. The badge, everything's shining. He gets up to me, and he goes, What, 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 scene, scene, scene. I said, you know what, officer, why don't you go ahead and put them cuffs on me? because I can tell where this is going to go right now. And, uh, and I ended up going to jail, and they called my parents and told my parents that they had me in jail. My mother said, well, uh, make sure she's warm, and uh, hung up. And, uh, and, and that started my, uh, my deal. And I started drinking and going to jail. Because when I drink, I'm out of control. When I'm drinking, it changed me into something totally different. When I drink, I fight. I lose, but I fight. But I still got that thing in my head where I hit squeaky that one good time and I became a boxer. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in Cincinnati, Ohio, I remember I walked in and they told me that I needed to get a sponsor. I don't need to get no sponsor. You get a sponsor. You better leave me alone and ask somebody about me. I have hurt people.
and my sponsor from England, I would say to her, you know what, don't ask me to do nothing, okay? Because seriously, I feel like hurting you right now. And she would go, ooh. Ooh, really? Really? Well, well, how about if I hurt you too? And I was like, okay, well, this ain't going to work. You know what I mean? And so, uh, so I, uh, I uh, started drinking, and I, I've been singing since I was uh, a young girl in my a granddaddy's church. And uh, uh, I don't know if you're an artist like me. You, 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 the day's going to come when somebody's just going to discover you. If you're like me, I ain't going to even be singing. I'm just going to be sitting in a restaurant. And some guy with a contract is going to walk up to me and go, do you sing? Why, yes, I do. My name's Bob from Epic Crackers. Here's a contract. Let's go. So I'm in the bathroom. My dad got me a job at a recording studio, and I'm in the bathroom. I hit my best Whitney used to know. And I, and I hit that note, and I come out, and there's that tall brother standing there. And he goes, was that you singing? I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, it was. He said, I can make you famous. Really? All you got to do is come to Vegas with me. No problem. So I went home and I called a family meeting. And when they all got there, I said, I will be back for you. I will be back for you all. As soon as I get my first Grammy, I shall return and never will we have to live in poverty again. My mother said, we don't live in poverty. But I found a way to get famous and I shall return. And my little sister said, Angie, please don't go. My brother said, please don't go. My father said, Angela, you have no business going. And my mother was like, So I left with this gentleman, I went out to Las Vegas, and I was a young girl in Las Vegas singing in casinos and having the time of my life, opening up for people, people that I never thought I'd ever see. And I'm having a good time, and I'm drinking, and alcohol is flowing freely, and I began this thing called blackouts. And I began waking up next to people, and I'm sure it doesn't happen in Georgia, but I began waking up next to people where we both looked at each other and went, damn, you know what I mean? And he had one tooth and it was gold. And his name was Zeb. And he said, you told me you loved me last night. I was like, did I? <laughs> I drink a lot, Zeb. Um, and so... I'm riding high on the horse, I'm having a good time, and I'm drinking, and I'm coming to work, and I'm coming to casinos, and I'm drunk, and I'm crying on stage. And managers begin to say things like, Angie, why don't you just, why don't you just drink one? Why don't you just wait and drink until you get off stage? Angie, why don't you drink beer? Honey, you got a great voice. You could be famous. Angie, why don't you just, just don't drink? And I couldn't do it. And I began to not show up at work, and I began to get blacklisted in casinos. And I went from having everything to having nothing, me and this gentleman. And this gentleman had his own affliction, and we went from living in this seedy hotel where there was bugs, and I'm drunk, and he's doing his thing. 
And one day, he comes to me at the hotel after he goes out and he tries to make a little money. He comes to the hotel and he said, I need you to drive me to the store. And I drove him to the store, drunk as I could be. And when he went in that store, he robbed the place and he shot and he killed the owner. And when he came back to the car and he had all that blood on he was screaming, go. And that's what I did. And a few short blocks later, I'm laying on the ground after being dragged out of that car with guns to my head and police all around me. And I don't know about you, when I took that innocent drink of alcohol with my friend Rebecca, I had no idea that that's the direction my life would take. And I go through this trial, and I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to these people tell me what kind of person I am. Listening to this little girl saying that we took that, her, her daddy's life. And listening to this woman talk about the loss of her husband. And me feeling as if I was responsible for it. And I need to tell you that this gentleman is still in Nevada prison to this day. And here I am in Gainesville, Georgia, at a function of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, just like it says in the book, there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. And I got a floater out of the state of Nevada by the governor. And what that is is that it's a letter that says, don't you ever bring yourself back to Nevada for any reason. And I left Nevada, and I came home, and I told my family, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to do what I need to do, and I'm going to take care of myself. My family was pleased. It lasted all of two weeks because I didn't know I had alcoholism and I didn't know that I could not not drink left to my own devices. So my brother and sister and I are riding the bus through Cincinnati. A long time ago in Cincinnati, they used to have this thing on Sunday called Sunday Pass Ride. And you could ride the metro bus all over the city for free. And my brother and sister and myself are on the bus and we're going all over the place. And we get down to an intersection in Cincinnati called Vine and Liberty. There's a little restaurant to the left, and when I looked over there, it was lit up. It had Cadillacs and pimps and Lincolns and prostitutes. And I remember my little sister looked over there, and she said, Boy, you couldn't pay me to go over there. And my brother was like, Shoot, me neither. And I was like, I'm going over there tomorrow. <laughs> and I started hanging out downtown Cincinnati, and I'm drinking with the big dogs, and I'm hanging out with the gangsters. And I'm drinking wine, and I'm hanging out with them. And I meet my three friends, no neck, greasy feet, and tie-dye. My friends. Let me tell you about my friends. My friends taught me how to drink Thunderbird Classic. My friends taught me how to roll up outfits and stick them in a girdle in a department store and walk out and go sell them for the remarkably low price of. My friends. So I'm drinking wine and I'm going into department stores trying to steal people's merchandise and I end up getting arrested. And while I'm arrested, I go into this justice center and I take a physical and I find out I'm pregnant. And when I go for sentencing, the judge looks at my background and looks at where I'm from and says, you have no business living this lifestyle and sentenced me 7 to 25 in the Ohio Reformatory for Women. And I can tell you that the only reason why I didn't lose my mind doing that prison sentence is because I was pregnant. And by this time, my family had kicked me to the curb. 
and I'm in the penitentiary and I'm rubbing my stomach and I'm telling my baby, when I get out of here, I'm going to take care of you. We're going to be happy, me and my baby. The warden comes to me after I have my child and said, you need to find a place for your child to go because of the amount of time that you're doing, it'll become a ward of the state. And I had to call my mother and tell her that I needed them to come and get my baby. And when I called my mother, I said, Mama, I need you to come up here and get my baby. She said, Angela, you have a baby? I said, yes, ma'am. And I need you to come and get him. And my parents rode up to the Ohio Reformatory for Women, and they got my child. They did not stop to see me. And I remember it like it was yesterday. He had this little blue thing on his head and this little snap-up, and he's in the blanket. And my mother's looking at him with love like I've never seen her look at a baby before. And I get to see him leave through a slit like this. And all I could think about the rest of my sentence was seeing my child. And when I got my freedom, my son was four years old. And I get on that bus down 71 South and all I could think about was my child. Seeing him and holding his little hand, walking with him and loving him to the best of my ability. I get to the Greyhound bus station and suddenly... The thought crossed my mind. If you're new in the room, it's more about alcoholism. Suddenly the thought crossed his mind that he could put a little whiskey in his milk. He sensed that he wasn't being a bit too smart. And suddenly the thought crossed my mind that surely one drink won't hurt me. And I went up to that bar with the sole intention of having one drink. And the next time I saw my child, he was 10 years old. You see, I don't know how your family works, but my family, there's no way that I could have explained logically why I couldn't show up. Because, see, the drinking thing baffled me. It baffled me. In the meantime, I'm hanging downtown Cincinnati. I'm drinking wine Cincinnati. I'm drinking wine and I'm hanging out. And I go to jail again and I'm pregnant again. And they let me out on probation. And I need to tell you that I drank every single day with my daughter. I had not one single day of prenatal care. And God has always put angels in my life. And I was trying to work a job. And this white couple, Tom and Elizabeth, said, Angie, we see you struggling. We're getting ready to open up one of these restaurants in Bloomington, Indiana. Why don't you just come on over there with us? And I said, okay, because I'm giving my baby up for adoption. And I went with Tom and Elizabeth, and I'm drinking every day, and I go into labor with my daughter. I'd already made the arrangements at the hospital through social services that I was going to give her up. And back then, when you gave a child up for adoption, as soon as she was able to come out of my stomach, they threw this tarp over me so that I couldn't see her. And they pulled her out of me, and they took her to the nursery, and they took me to medical. And I remember laying on that car as they pushed me on that cot. I remember thinking, what is wrong with me? Why can't I raise these babies? And they took me over to medical, and I had been talking to my sister, and my sister had let my parents know that I was over in Bloomington getting ready to give their granddaughter away. And they called me and said, please don't do that, Angie. We'll raise her. Y'all just come home. And I got on that Greyhound bus with that little baby, and she was so little, y'all, when she was born. 
and she shook a lot. And I said, God, please just don't let her cry. I don't know what to do. And for four hours from Bloomington, Indiana, to Cincinnati Greyhound Station, my daughter made not one sound. There were times I would pick up her little body and lift her up to me just to see if she was breathing. Just to see if she was breathing and I would put her back down. She had a head full of curly black hair. She had those cute little juicy lips like that little baby Eva got back there. Oh, my God, my daughter. I get to the Greyhound bus station and my father and my mother are there. My father, when I walked into the Greyhound bus station, my father took my little girl out of my arms. And he said, Angie, we got her. I said, Daddy, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what you're supposed to do, but she don't deserve it. And they took that little girl, and they went on about their business, and I went to the bar, and I drank as if there was no tomorrow. By this time, I'm living on the banks of the Ohio River in a boarding house for wayward women. And I'm drinking, and I'm doing other substances, and one day I'm at the bar, and I'm drunk as I could be, and this gentleman said, why don't you come on and do some other substances with me? And what he did was he took me up to his apartment, and I drank. And he cooked up his dope, and he shot ice water into my veins. And I staggered my way out of that apartment, and I walked those blocks back to the river. And all I could say was, God, please don't let me die like this. And I'm drunk, and I get down to that boarding house, and there's a little blonde woman standing in the door. And it seemed as everything in time stopped. And she looked me straight in my eyes, and she said, Honey, you don't have to keep living like this. And I said, I'm getting ready to die. He shot ice water into my back. She goes up to my room at this boarding house, and she puts a wet rag on my head, and she caressed my hand. And she started telling me about her drinking. And she told me how she got soaked. And she took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous the next day. And when I got to that clubhouse, it was about 200 Harleys parked outside. It was all these white people with white cups. And I remember thinking, well, it, it could be a good party. And I'm walking up the walkway, and people are reaching out their hands to me. How you doing? I'm Wino Bob. I'm Big Book Tim. I'm Pepsi Paul. I said, okay, that's interesting. And I walk up the steps to go into this building, and this big biker dude grabs me around my waist and picks me up, and he goes, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Squirrel. And where I came from, and where I came from, you didn't do a lot of hugging. I said, Squirrel, you're going to have to put me down, bruh. <laughs> so we go into the building, and we're sitting in this big room, and I'm over to the right-hand side, sitting close to the wall as I could because I had no idea what was about to happen. And she said a man was going to get up and tell his story. And this man got up, and he told all of his business. I remember sitting there thinking, why is this white man telling all his business like this? What is wrong with these people? And then he would say something and they would bust out laughing just like y'all. I said, what the heck? And then they passed the basket. I said, oh, here we go. Oh, this church. Okay, I can do this. 
Afterwards, she said to me, it's tradition that uh, after the speaker talks, we go and we thank the speaker. So all of a sudden they got up and they held hands. And they bowed their heads. I said, Lord, and they hypocrites too. <laughs> and they said this prayer and then they began to chant something. After they got to keep coming back, it, it, something if you whatever, keep, keep coming back. It works if you work it. Keep coming back. So I'm, you know, practicing that. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. And then I finally got what they were saying. Keep coming back. It squirts if you jerk it. I'm kidding. I am kidding. Oh, this is Sunday morning. I'm glad my sponsor ain't here. Look at Mari. Mari's looking at me like she's my mom, like her and Donna. So I hung around AA for a while. It wasn't like I had a huge social schedule or anything. So I hung around. I went to meetings. I read the book at the top of my lungs. And, you know, I was getting sober with a vengeance. You know, I was the only black. If I was at the coffee bar and you didn't get me my coffee in time, I'd say, it's because I'm black, ain't it? That's why I can't get my coffee. Why I got to drink my coffee out of a white cup? Why can't I drink it out of a black cup? And my sponsor would say things like, would you sit down? I'd say, you know what, sister? While we're on the subject, you probably need to be a little nicer with me with slavery and civil rights and all. And she goes, oh, really? Who do you personally know that was a slave? I was like, well, I don't know nobody personally. She goes, until you do, we won't be having this conversation again. And I was like, y'all sponsors serious, huh? Y'all got a university somewhere or something? And, uh, and so I started hanging around, and, and about this time, uh, this little crack problem came to Cincinnati. It might not have happened to AA in Georgia, but it definitely happened to AA in Cincinnati, Ohio. And they start showing up to 405 Oak Street, the place where I am sober, coming in there talking about crack. We don't play that. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe they'll come up with a Crackaholics Anonymous, but right now you are an Alcoholics Anonymous, and we don't deal with crack here. I did everything. I knocked on the white door. They're in here. They're trying to take over Alcoholics Anonymous. I did everything but have a big picket sign and say, crackheads, go home. You know what I mean? And I'm telling you this to tell you this. I had all of them at the back table. They all were just very skinny. Their eyes were big. I told them I would sponsor them all. And I sat back there and I read the big book to them. And they would all just sit there and look like this. I abused them. I abused them. Because I was hearing people say, you can't come into Alcoholics Anonymous with that stuff. And I abused them. And one day I'm sitting at the Wednesday night meeting, not a cloud on the horizon, and suddenly the thought crossed my mind. Because you guys have been talking about God using you as an instrument. I said, God using me as an instrument too. And he wanted me to go find some black people and bring them to AA. So the guy asked if there was any AA announcements. Old timer said, Angie, I said, I'm going to roll on up out of here. Thank y'all for the real big book and everything, but, uh, you know, I'm going to go do God's work. And uh, old timer said, well, get out of here then. 
There's people trying to stay sober in here. We'll see you if you make it back. I said, I don't need to come back. And I left Alcoholics Anonymous that day with the pure intention of helping people, of helping people. And I got my big book, and I walked down the Redden Road to the number 43 bus stop. And I said, the first black person I see drunk, I'm going to carry the message. And I got on that bus, and a brother staggered on. I said, bingo. <laughs> and I slid over next to him on that bus, and I said, my brother, you been drinking? He said, yeah, I had a little something, something. I said, you know, you might be an alcoholic. So he started cussing me out on the bus and everything. And uh, I said, you know, the people at the AA club told me that you would probably react like this to my information. So I'm going to have to give it to you the only way that I know how and the only way that you can receive it. And I opened up that big book to Chapter 5, and I told you that I'm from a family of Baptist ministers. And I opened up that book. I said, Rarely! Did you hear what I said? I said, Rarely have we seen a person fail who is thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are those who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And the bus driver said, oh, hell no. <laughs> he said, you got to get off this bus. And I said, you, oh, Mr. Bus Driver, are an alcoholic too. And so I, I left and I went down to the bar where I knew it was some black alcoholics. And I walked into that bar and I snatched that plug out the jukebox because they was dancing. But I've been to AA. I knew that they was really feeling pain. So I snatched that jukebox, plug out the jukebox. I said, black drunk. They got a place for you up on the hill. It's called the Double A Club. And you two never have to drink again. And you can be happy on the inside. They said, well, what the hell are you doing down here? I said, oh, I graduated. And step 18 says I'm supposed to help y'all. So they said, girl, if you don't plug that jukebox in, we'll kill you. I said, you know what? The people at the AA Club told me that you would probably react like this to my information. So I'm going to give it to you the only way I know how and the only way you can receive it. And I opened up that big book to Chapter 5. And I said, Rarely! Did you hear what I said? I said, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are those who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. That bar owner said, you got to get up out of here, baby girl. I'm trying to make money in here. And I went outside on the sidewalk and I started reading the book to the passerbys. And suddenly the thought crossed my mind. You know, Angie, you've been without alcohol for a minute. One shot of gin won't hurt you. <laughs> you guys are so funny. Oh, oh, good Lord. So I went into the bar and I told the bartender, let me get a shot of Tangeray, please. She goes, Angie, you ain't. Give me a shot of Tangeray. I'm only going to have one. Took that shot of Tangeray, threw it back, and 45 minutes later, I was in a crack house. Why, well, I, I don't do that. But I'm going to tell you something. I'll be forever grateful because it ran me back to Alcoholics Anonymous with the quickness. And when I showed back up in Alcoholics Anonymous, 
June the 20th, 1991. I was dirty. My hair was matted to my head. I had been sleeping outside doing things that I didn't think that I would ever do. I had been properly horrified and thoroughly convinced. And I remember being out in the streets. I didn't drink at home because I didn't have a home. I drank in the streets. And I slept where I could. And I showed back up to Alcoholics Anonymous a dirty, stinking mess. And I remember one day I was on the bus. And I was so drunk and I was so distraught. And I saw Vicki on the bus and she had been sober for a while. And she said, Angie, you can come back anytime. You can come back anytime. Thank God for that. Thank God that she didn't judge me. She put her arms around me based on the way that I looked. She didn't care. All she cared about was my sobriety. And a short time later, I showed back up. And a time later, I showed back alcoholics anonymous. And with all the guilt and shame and remorse, I walked up that walk. And I went into that building, and there was an old-timer, that same old-timer that was at that Wednesday night meeting. And he looked at me, and he said, Angie, you're going to die. I said, I know, and I need you to help me. And he reached up on that shelf, and he got the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said, you start reading this from the beginning. But right now, you go out to that door, and you shake hands, and you introduce yourself as an alcoholic. And it's thinking as and as dirty as I was, I stood at that door. And I stuck my hand out and I said, my name Angie, I'm an alcoholic. And people looked at me and they snatched their hand back. Based on the way I looked. Because I was stinking and dirty. Because I was talking to myself. People thought I didn't want to get sober. People thought that I would never get sober. But nobody knew what was on the inside of me. But me that day, and I stood out that door, and some people who practiced the principles and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous shook my hand and said, Angie, good to see you. Baby, keep coming back. And I got my sponsor, and my sponsor started taking me to institution meetings, and she got me an institution meeting. She took me to a big book study, and I started studying the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And let me tell you one thing that I learned about myself. Is that when the student is ready, the teachers appear. And when I opened up that book and I began to read it, it began to make sense to me. When Bill talked about taking, going, and take, going through his wife's slender purse, I did that. Things began to make sense to me. And those days turned into weeks turned into months, and turned into years. I couldn't get a job when I first got sober because I had been to the penitentiary so many times. Nobody would hire me. And I started volunteering. They shared with me, go volunteer somewhere, Angie, but you need to do something with your time. So I'm going to three meetings a day, and I'm volunteering at a treatment center, and the director at a treatment center said, look, I'm going to take a chance on you. I'm going to go ahead and hire you. And I got my first job, the first time I had ever worked in my life. 
I had drank so much that I couldn't even read anymore. Thank God for the 530 Big Book meetings. Thank God for those people that when I said words and couldn't pronounce words, that they sat there and they told me what they meant and they told me how to pronounce it. I didn't graduate high school and I was sitting in my first apartment that I got at 40 years old. And I had just left a meeting where a girl had talked about going to college. And she was worse than I was when I had seen her on the street. And she said she was going to college. And I remember asking my sponsor, I wonder if I could go to college. She said, do you have a diploma, a high school diploma? I said, yeah, I got one, but I made it when I was in prison. <laughs> she said, where is that diploma at now? I said, it's in my personnel file on my job, and she said, you got to go tell them. And by this time, I had got a job at an all-male treatment center. And I went up to my boss, and I said, that diploma that you have in that um, personnel file is not real. He said, what? I said, it's not real. And he went and he got my personnel file, and he pulled that diploma out, and he looked at it, and he said, you good. <laughs> he said, but you got to have a high school diploma to work here, baby. I said, are you going to fire me? He said, no, but I'm going to give you six months to get it. And one night I was sitting in my apartment and Sally Struthers came on TV and she said, you too can get your high school diploma on TV. And I called that number and it was Stratford. And I called that number and they started sending me books. And people in A started coming over and working with me on my English. And I passed that English test and I sent it back and they sent me the math book and people in AA came over and they taught me math. And I, when I finished the last series where I was able to take the test for their diploma, I went and I signed up for the GED. And I took that GED and I passed it with a perfect score. Might not mean much to you, but man, it meant everything to me. And I remember I got that and I remember I got the diploma and I said, I'm going to college. And I remember I ran up to the University of Cincinnati in the missions and I was like, I want to go to college. And they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. And about this time they had incorporated the School of Addiction Studies into the University of Cincinnati. And I need to tell you that I now have my liberal arts and social sciences in addiction studies. I want to tell you about my kids. My daughter is 24 years old. She just graduated with her bachelor's in psychology from Grambling State University in Louisiana. And at about five years sober, my family asked me to stay out of my children's life and let them have the same opportunities that I had growing up. And I remember I went to people and I said, my mother don't want me to see my kids. My sponsor said, Angie, you just stay sober. Work on your sobriety. And I stepped out of my kid's life. But I had to see him, y'all. And I would go to my daughter's soccer games. And I would sit over in the back and buy a tree with a baseball hat and sunglasses on, and I would watch Whitney play soccer. And I would go to my son's basketball games and I'd sit up in the highest bleacher 
with a jacket and a baseball hat and a scarf on. And I would watch my son play basketball. Whatever sport they did, I was at. I didn't bother him. I didn't bother him, but I had to see him. On my daughter's 18th birthday, she called me. And she said she wanted to see me. And I went and I picked my daughter up and we went to the mall and she spent every dime I had. <laughs> she spent every dime I had. And I said, you know, I'm going to have to be a little more specific in my prayers. <laughs> Lord, I want to see my kids, but I'd like to have a couple pennies in my pocket at the end. And we rode home. I was driving her back to her home. And she had her head on my shoulder. And I told her, Honey, it wasn't a day that went by that I didn't think about you. It wasn't a day. And I told her I was an Alcoholics Anonymous. And my daughter loves Alcoholics Anonymous. My son has been sentenced to prison to more time than he's been alive. But I want to thank people that take AA into institutions because my son is now a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in prison. God has been good to me, you guys. Thank God for AA. And one of the reasons why I do what I do is because I wanted to be here. I wanted to continue. I wanted to continue the way it did when I got here, where people didn't care much about my feelings. They cared about my life and sobriety. And they showed me a design for living that has changed this little street Gutter bomb that came into AA, and today, what I, and today what I feel like is a lady. Finally, I'm a lady. I've been wanting to be one for a long time. I've been wanting to be one for a long time. I'm going to share this with you, and then I'm going to shut up. Long time ago, back home, my grandmother... She was sitting, Big Mama would sit in her rocking chair, and she would have given us all a glass of sassafras tea with men in it. And we would sit there, and we would sip that tea, and she would sing this song. And I never knew the meaning of it until that night when they asked me to speak at the International Convention in Toronto. And I walked up on that platform. And I couldn't believe it. I looked out there and I said, how do you go from sleeping on the street to getting ready to speak in front of 55,000 alcoholics? Well, there's one who has all power. That one is God. I'm going to close with this. Amazing grace, how sweet the the sound that. Saved a wretch 